0: Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 17. We're returning again uh, to this chapter. And this is a significant chapter. I think I probably say that about like every chapter in Matthew. But this is a significant chapter. This is another one of those significant chapters. There are actually 28 significant chapters in the book of Matthew. <laughs> I've come to realize that reality. <laughs> but uh, this is an important chapter to be sure. This uh this chapter is a high point in in one sense because, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples whose faith has been severely damaged and has been struggling by Jesus speaking to them openly for the very first time about his impending rejection and suffering and crucifixion and then resurrection and you know the poor disciples. They they seem to understand uh, rejection. They seem to understand the word suffering, and they seem to understand the word crucifixion. What they seems to elude them is the word resurrection, and uh, we will see that that continues to elude them for uh, for the next few months. Uh, actually, right up through to the resurrection itself. But um, so the transfiguration was that event where Jesus went there and. Um, Believing it was somewhere in the uh, in the slopes of Mount Hermon in the north, uh, to there where Jesus pulled back his humanity, as it were, and gave his struggling disciples Peter, James, and John, representative of the others, a glimpse at his undiminished glory—that is, the Messiah in his coming kingdom—and so it was a it was a real high point. But like all mountaintop experiences, uh, you have to come down from the mountain, and that's exactly what happens beginning today, this morning, they come down from the mountain, and when they come down from the mountain, they encounter a really difficult situation. But the way Matthew has structured his gospel, and like all Bible writers, he doesn't write everything he could. He has a theme. He has a purpose. He selects true events from the life of Christ in order to narrate them, to communicate his purposes. And uh, here in chapter 17 and beginning in verse 14, there is, a, there is a bit of a transition that happens in the text. It's worth, I think, taking a few minutes to, to take a look at it. And the reason I want to do that with you is because it will kind of set the outline for about the next 10 or 12 messages. So uh, we'll kind of know where we're going by looking at this together. So beginning here in verse 14 of chapter 17... The, uh, the 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 yeah, cross is about six months away now, just chronologically to get that you in your mind. It's about six months until the rejection and crucifixion and then resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the remainder of these six months, Jesus is going to continue to move around. He's going to remain primarily outside of Galilee. He'll make brief incursions into once into Galilee and a couple of times into Jerusalem, but always moving in and out quickly, trying to stay away from the authorities, trying not to get himself in a position where there'll be a premature confrontation or a showdown. He knows that he must go to Jerusalem. He must die there in Jerusalem, officially presenting himself as the king of Israel and being rejected by the people but during this six months he's working to prepare his disciples his inner group to uh, to take up the ministry following his death burial and resurrection and there's a lot he needs to communicate to them they've been with him now some of them for three years and uh, they're still in elementary school in many ways and they've got to get to graduate school pretty quick because the final exam is going to be coming so what Matthew does for us is, is arrange events, and I don't mean by arrange events in, in the sense he's making anything up, but he brings to the text for us, records for us, a series of events and a series of teachings that, uh, that happened over this six months that provide lessons. They were lessons to the disciples, and they are, by extension, lessons to us about what it means to live together in community as a new work of God called the church. You remember in chapter 16, Jesus introduces the concept of the church for the very first time. It could not have been introduced prior to that in biblical revelation because prior to that, the, the nation had not rejected their king. And so there was still a valid Uh, offer of the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel in these first three years of Jesus' public ministry. And we talked about that last time. And it's it's a conundrum to be sure, but that doesn't make it not true. But the rejection is now quite obvious. Jesus has introduced the concept of a new work, the church, in chapter 16, as I say. And now here, beginning in chapter 17, verse 14, and running all the way through the end of chapter 20, are a series of lessons for what it means to live together in community. That's good for them. That's good for us. These lessons are all very firmly rooted in the Old Testament and the two great commands of the Old Testament, which are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this, in one sense, is not new information. It is the application of the long-standing uh, revelation of God that the two great commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. And I think we would be quite justified in saying that uh, when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel in 28, 19, and 20, the disciples are told, and then again by extension, we are instructed to go into the world and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. So the lessons here are the lessons Jesus taught them, They have been taught to to the disciples generation after generation after generation. They remain applicable to us today for us to put into practice and to teach others as we disciple them. So, what are they? Let's uh, take a couple of minutes here and uh, just kind of look at this section of Matthew's gospel and get an overview. And we'll, of course, come back to it with some regularity. So, first lesson here in verse 14 and the lesson we're going to develop this morning... It begins in verse 14, it runs through verse 20, and the lesson is simply this we must live by faith. Big idea, big lesson, we must live by faith. Beginning in verse uh, 22 and running through verse 27 of chapter 17, big idea, we must be willing to surrender our rights. So we must live by faith. Second lesson for those living in community, that's us, is that we must be willing to surrender our rights. Third big lesson, chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Humility is essential for greatness. Humility is essential for greatness. Fourth lesson, chapter 18, verses 7 through 14. Do not lead people into sin. Do not lead People into sin. That's an important lesson for those living in community as the people of God. Next big lesson, beginning in verse 15 and running through verse 20, is this, and that is that we are to settle our disputes peaceably. So the lesson do not lead others into sin. But in this broken world, sin does occur and disputes and disagreements occur among the people of God. So settle your disputes peaceably. And Jesus gives an outline to how to go about doing that. Chapter 18, verse 21 through 35, another lesson for us. And it is to recognize your duty to forgive. So settle your disputes peaceably. Recognize your duty, not option, your duty to forgive among the community of God. That takes us into chapter 19 and verses 1 through 12. And the lesson here is that marriage is not disposable. Marriage is not disposable. The marriage... uh, Communion, the, the, the marriage covenant among the people of God should be something that the world can look to and gain insight from because God has designed it to portray the realities, the spiritual realities of Christ and his church. So marriage is not disposable for the people of God. Next lesson, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16 and running all the way through verse 26 we must surrender all. We must surrender all. That's what it means to live together in community as the people of God. And then finally, in chapter 20, in verses 1 through 16, the lesson is this God is gracious, and we should be too. God is gracious. And we, as the people of God, made in the image of God, bearing the stamp of God, must be gracious too. So these are important, important lessons that we need to not just learn once, but we need to learn them how often? Until we get them. And we won't get them until Jesus gets us. So it's, it's something we need to be regularly reminded of. It's something we need to pray for. It's something we need to encourage and exhort and even admonish one another to. Important, important lessons for living together in the community of believers. So, back to chapter 17, we're taking up the first lesson this morning, living by faith. Living by faith. We must live by faith. We had Hebrews chapter 11 for this morning's scripture reading. Wonderful, wonderful chapter. Boy, just to hear that word read and to meditate on the realities there is, is just thrilling to my soul. But as was pointed out, I point out to you again in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is is the essential aspect of what it means to be a child of God. We come to God in faith. We begin our journey with God in faith. And we continue that journey by faith. It is faith from beginning to end. In the words of the reformers, it is sola fide. It is faith alone. It is faith alone. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. It is a faith proposition from beginning to end. It would not be going too far to say that the definition of Christianity is the life of faith. It is the life of faith. And we can see it this morning in the text that we have before us, beginning in verse 14 and running through Verse 20. So, taking a look at the text, I have a little outline for you here. There's a pair of questions, actually. There's two questions and answers that uh, form a a nice little outline for this. So I've got a pair of questions and answers that Matthew brings uh, to the table here in order to reinforce the essential nature of faith for the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? So there's our outline. There are going to be two questions and two answers question number 1 beginning in verse 14 will you help my son first question will you help my son now matthew's account uh, is uh, also uh, duplicated in uh, mark and luke and that frequently happens But they are not identical, and so there are details that are available in those other gospel accounts of the same event that I think are helpful. And in fact, in this case, Matthew's account here is more abbreviated than Mark's, and so we'll rely on Mark to bring some more details to it. And I think it just helps us to understand what's going on. So uh, I, won't want, I won't make you flip back and forth. I've got them, the verses for you when I need them. I'll read them to you. We'll have them on the screens. But you'll be able to kind of use this to fill in the picture because it's important. It's important to get a, bed, a full and better understanding of what's going on. First question, will you help my son? Mark records, uh, records the event happening this way. In Mark 9 and beginning in verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? The scene is is Jesus along with Peter and James and John descending from the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 9 and verse 27, it is the next day. That is, they spent the night together on the mountain. They're coming down from the mountain on the next day. They have been in the presence of the glorified Christ. They have uh, experienced the Shekinah glory of the Father. They have heard his voice. They have been undone. By what they have experienced, Jesus has ministered to them. And now they're coming back down the mountain and Jesus has told them, keep a lid on it. Don't talk about what you have seen and experienced until after the resurrection. They're coming down the mountain and they have been discussing together uh, the aspect about the coming kingdom and what does he mean by resurrection and all of these sorts of things. And so they come down and they come back to the place where they had left their disciples. And the situation that they arrive at is a situation that is very disheartening. It is a situation that is very discouraging. Because it's a situation in which sin and spiritual blindness are on full display. Full display. This is is definitely coming from the mountaintop to the valley. They have come from the mountaintop into the valley. What they encounter evidently is is a crowd that has gathered... And they have gathered around the disciples. There are the disciples and there are some scribes, which are the, uh, the experts in the law of Moses among the people of Israel. And the scribes and the disciples are arguing and the crowd is gathered around. It doesn't take a lot of imagination uh, to see that. And whether they were wagering with one another on the event or not, we certainly couldn't tell. But we, but we get that sense that the crowd is there because there's a good fight brewing. And they are... They are, they are they have a macabre interest in the dispute that is going on. They're watching the fight. And upon seeing Jesus coming back down into the village, I think this happens in a village, and I can tell you more later why I believe that. As they see Jesus coming back towards the village here, they see his approach. The crowd leaves the fight behind, and they turn and they run to Jesus. They run to Jesus, and they greet him. And Jesus says, what's happening? What's going on? What's the commotion all about? Again, Mark informs us in Mark 9, verses 17 to 18. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. A voice out of the crowd calls out to Jesus, and then and then separates himself from the crowd as as we'll see here in Matthew's account of the event in just a moment. And but it's a it's a father who has a son, and he comes and and he and he hollers out to Jesus about this son who is who is in a very serious situation health wise. And he, and he comes and, and he bows at the feet of Jesus. He kneels, that is, at the feet of Jesus. And he begs him to heal his son. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Luke adds the detail that this child, this boy, this son, is uh, the man's only son. It is his only son. And Luke tells us that there is an evil spirit. There is a demon involved. And when the demon uh, enters in and takes possession of this boy, the, 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 the boy screams, Luke says, when it happens, and the demon throws the boy down into, into convulsions, and it mauls him, Luke says. So we see that it 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 um, it, it the the, uh, the demon uh, knocks him to the ground. It, it apparently knocks him in a way that he that he is susceptible to falling into the fire or falling into the water. It it uh, causes his his um, uh, him to foam at the mouth, to grind his teeth, all kinds of physical manifestations. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Matthew records uh, that the father says that his son is a lunatic. I guess I probably should stop and maybe just talk about that for a moment. Uh, uh, the word translated here in the English lunatic is from a Greek word which means moonstruck, moonstruck. It actually is, uh, it is derived from the Greek word for moon, as is the English word lunatic, right? It is also derived from the, from the word for moon. And what it basically means is this, it, it, it stems from the, the ancient notion that the moon could influence human behavior. And so when a person was acting in a way that, that didn't comport with a, with, uh, with a reason, with, uh, operating by reason, and operated in ways that were very uh, out of the ordinary, they would say that they were moonstruck, or as it comes to us in English, they are a lunatic. But when you look at the symptoms here, and uh, I think all the modern commentators agree on this, when you look at the symptoms, what they resemble is the disease that, that you and I know is epilepsy. The disease of epilepsy. Now, whether this uh, boy uh, was afflicted with epilepsy or not, we can't know for sure, but one thing we can know for sure because the text tells us is that even if this is epilepsy, it is epilepsy that has been brought on by a demon. The, the medical condition of this boy, the terrible state in which this boy finds himself is a result, these terrible seizures, are seizures, a result of demon activity in the boy. Now we can go no further than that. This is not a license to begin to practice medicine and, uh, and seek to find demonic activity behind various uh, diseases that afflict the human condition. But for sure, we are told here, based on the authority of the Word of God, that this is something that resembles epilepsy brought on by a demon. And when the demon afflicts this child, he seeks to destroy the child. He seeks to destroy the child, and he, and he does that by causing the child to, to stumble into the cooking fire. He causes the child to, to stumble into any water that might be nearby. Mark tells us, Mark nine twenty one. the situation has been going on since the boy was a child. It has been a long-standing affliction. And that's pretty hard to imagine for most. Pretty hard to imagine that kind of situation. This poor family, this father, 24 7 he has to keep guard over his son. He can't leave him alone. Why? Well, because when the demon comes upon him, it causes him to, to, to stumble into the fire. It causes him to stumble into the, wa- into the water. It, it is seeking to destroy his only son. And so the father has been keeping a vigilant watch over this boy. And I would, you know, being a father myself, is not hard to imagine. There's a 24-7 kind of watch care necessary to protect this boy. And it has been going on a long time. There have been numerous violent episodes and the father is unable to help his son. So you can can begin to get a sense of the grief, a sense of the anguish, a sense of the pain, a sense of the helplessness, a sense even of the hopelessness that this man feels for his only son. So he brings him to Jesus. Verse 16 I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Faced with this terrible situation, the the poor father has brought his son to Jesus. That was his intention, was to bring his son to Jesus so that Jesus might heal, have mercy upon them, and heal his son. But when he gets there, Jesus is not there, right? Because Jesus is on the mountain. So the father, in his agony, and his torment, he does what any father would do. He turns to the disciples of Jesus and he says to them, please help me. Please help me. Verse 16, they could not cure him. They could not cure him. They can't help him. They are unable to to bring relief to him in his his moment of great need. They cannot, the the, the text is, is that they are not able, they do not have the power, they do not have the ability to help this man. And it's at that point in time, I think the argument with the scribes begins. That's when the argument with the scribes begins i don't think it's going too far you can go with me here if you like or if you don't i'm good with that too but i think it's it's entirely within the realm of possibility that the scribes engineered this to some degree that they that they brought the father and his child and his boy to jesus for the purpose of trying to discredit jesus or trip him up this is a hard case this is a hard case and one of the reasons uh, I, I say that is because you've got scribes here in the, in, the, in the confrontation, in the scenario. And where this is occurring is in Caesarea Philippi, the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is, a, which is a essentially Gentile area. So to have scribes who are the holy men of Israel, teachers of the law, not just a scribe but scribes plural, right with the S, so to have a number of them in an area outside of Israel in a confrontation like this, just leads me to, to uh, be somewhat persuaded that they're part of this, that they are engineering this confrontation. They're hoping that Jesus is unable to heal the boy, and thus they will have a reason to accuse him. Jesus is not there, but the disciples are unable to heal the boy, and that's almost as good. And so the argument begins. And I think it's an argument about their, their uh, power, their ability. They are impotent in this moment, and the scribes jump on that and begin to argue with them, and I think ultimately arguing with them about the identity of Jesus. Is he really the king of Israel? If he is, he would be able to do the kingdom miracles. This is a kingdom miracle. He's not able to do it. Well, he's not here, but you're his his disciples, and we've heard that you can do these kinds of things, and you can't do it. You can see how A to B to C, and they get to where they want to be. So that's the scenario. Will you help my son? And now we have Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer. And I, it's an unexpected answer, I think. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say it's a shocking kind of answer. Coming down off the mountain, Jesus has been confronted by the helplessness and unbelief. And previously, as we've worked our way through the gospel, we've seen that that's not unusual, right? That it's not unusual for Jesus to be in a situation where there is helpless people desperately in need of of his divine touch, desperately in need of the mercy of God, and they are surrounded, the situation is surrounded by unbelief, some of the people themselves being unbelieving. And yet Jesus seems to always acquiesce to their need. He, he, he heals their sicknesses, their diseases. Matthew is very clear. says this in several places. Matthew 4 and 17 is one of them. That he, he healed all of their afflictions and illnesses. And believe me, if someone can heal any problem you have, if you're a parent and you've got a child with a problem or you've got a wife or a husband with a problem or a, a brother or a sister, you're going to bring him to Jesus to be healed. You're going to go to the finest medical place you can get to, and that's the Messiah. And so all the people have been coming to him and he has been caring for their needs. And he's been caring for their needs at great personal cost. Often he's gone away to the wilderness to be alone by himself in order to pray and to, and to nourish his own soul with his father in preparation of the terrible mission on which he has come. And his plans get interrupted and he graciously and quietly and lovingly and humbly and serving kind of fashion meets the people's needs. But he responds here in a way I think that is that if you're a reader of this gospel and you've been following it so long, I think it's unexpected. I think his response here is, is quite unexpected. In fact, I would go so far to say that his response here is uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, not to them, uncomfortable to you and I. I think the response of Jesus to this question, will you help my son, is a very unexpected and a very uncomfortable response. Verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? What do you think? They're kind of unexpected and maybe a little bit uncomfortable. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Unbelieving and perverted generation, verse 17. Generation. uh, It speaks about the whole nation at that time. It, It captures everybody. All the people. He is talking to everybody. And and he he castigates them. That is that he severely rebukes them in two ways. He says to the people there, and, and it includes his disciples. It includes the scribes. It includes the crowds. I think it includes the Father. He says they are faithless and they are perverse. Faithless and perverse. The former, faithless, it, it speaks about their attitude towards God. They are approaching God in, in a way that, that it does not exhibit faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. They are not pleasing to God in their faithlessness. Beyond that, they are perverse. The word means twisted. The, the word means Distorted. We often uh, in our culture, I think we have too narrow a definition or, or imagination of that word, and we tend to move it towards sexual uh, crime, being twisted or distorted in how one approaches sexuality, and it certainly falls within the, within the range of that word, but that's not what they're talking about here. Jesus is not accusing them of sexual misconduct. He is accusing them of being twisted or distorted in their thinking about God's Messiah, They are twisted, they are distorted in the way they think about Messiah. They are acting like their forefathers, the generation in the wilderness, the one that saw the miracles of God, right? The the deliverance from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, all the miracles, the, the falling of Jericho, and on and on it went and yet there in the wilderness they demonstrated in the words of God in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20, they are a people who are perverse and in whom is no faithfulness. Deuteronomy 32, 20. They are acting just like their forefathers, a generation that died in the wilderness. Now this rebuke, is criticism, it certainly applies to the scribes. They have repeatedly demonstrated their refusal to believe and submit to God's will for them through Messiah. It relates to the crowds, the crowds who are, who are just along for the show. But I think the, this, this malady of, of, uh, of faithlessness and perversion has also affected the disciples They have been drinking from the same polluted well. There's a a large degree in which they are demonstrating the very same problem of the rest of that generation. One writer said it this way, and I, I think he's right on. He says the idea here is that the Jesus is not going to be with his disciples very much longer, and they had better get their act together. Six months and he's gone. They had better get their act together. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? These are rhetorical questions. There are two of them. They are rhetorical questions. He's not expecting an answer. But it is these questions that that reveal the the depth of the burden, I believe, and trial that is pressing down on the soul of the God-man, Messiah. He has been among The people, he has has been constantly ministering and preaching and teaching and pouring himself out and offering many convincing proofs. And they will not receive him. They care not for him. They care not for his father who sent him. They are interested in primarily having their bellies filled and their illnesses healed. Their approach to Jesus is, is like to treat him like an ATM that they can go and make a withdrawal of, of whatever blessing they need whenever they need it. But don't call me, we'll call you. They have not given serious thought to his message. They have not integrated the, the radical demands of discipleship that he has made upon them as he has exposited the law of God and shown them the, the full extent of what it means to live as the people of God. They are hard-hearted. And in the face of such hard-heartedness with the cross merely six months away, Jesus expresses exasperation with his people. He is exasperated with them. Now, at this point in the narrative, Mark again provides a little help for us. The father begs Jesus to take pity on him, and the father says, and this is in Mark 9, the father says, Jesus, if you are able take pity on us. But if you can do anything, Mark records it, take pity on us and help us. If you can, it's another word of ability. It's another word of power. If you have the power, if you have the ability, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... If you can, where have you been? What have you been doing for the last three years? What have you listened to? If I can? All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Matthew 17 records that Jesus says, "Bring him here to me, bring him here to me. When the boy is brought near, and Jesus heals the, heals the boy, He casts out the demon. He heals the boy, the boy is healed immediately. he is restored to complete health. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked him, that is the demon. And the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. If you can. If you can. Does verse 17 bother you? I was was spending all week in my office thinking about this, and I thought, it bothers me. Am I going to be the only one on Sunday morning that it bothers? Doesn't it seem out of character to you? Doesn't it seem like... Boy, that's that's not very friendly. That's not winsome. That's that's not a meek and mild Jesus. For those of you that it bothers, let me ask you a question. Why does it bother us? Why does his response bother us? Perhaps, just perhaps, perhaps, Perhaps because we have come to a place where we expect God to overlook our shabby faith. That we just assume that God should be happy with whatever he sees. Whatever is there, be happy. I mean, most of the world doesn't believe at all, so I believe a little, so be happy. Don't ask for so much. Don't have such high expectations. Yeah, my faith is kind of shoddy, but, but I am a believer. Maybe. Maybe we've drunk too deeply of the well of unbelief that surrounds us. Maybe we're trading on the grace of God. Maybe we've grown complacent in our walk with God. Just maybe. Just maybe. Maybe. Beloved, it is is a walk of faith, yes? But it is still a walk. It is still a walk. Question one, will you help my son? Question two, what happened to our power? Second question, what happened to our power? Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately Mark tells us, Mark 9:28, that they came to him in a house. That's why I say I think this was a village. So they're staying in a house. And they, they wait to come inside the house. They do not want to be out in the open anymore. They're, they're feeling very embarrassed, very exposed by all of this. Confused even. So they come to Jesus, and verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus. They came to him privately, and they said, why could we not drive it out? Why did we lack the power to drive it out? Why are we impotent in this situation? I mean, earlier, remember... You had sent us out two by two. Matthew 10 records that. You gave us power to heal all kinds of disease and illness. You gave us power to cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And they went about healing all kinds of disease, casting out demons. They had power over the spirit realm. They had power over the realm of disease. Everything looked pretty good. Who pulled the plug on that? Was that just a, you know, like a six-month loan? Or what's going on? They're baffled. They're confused. They're embarrassed. And so Jesus answers them. A pointed answer. This is another one of the places where, when you rub up against Jesus, this, your skin gets scratched. Okay, we like Teflon Jesus. You know, you get real close to him, and everything is really smooth and cool. This is this is the um, I don't know what's a good word. This is the, um, the rough side of Jesus. This is the rough side of Jesus. He answered them. Verse 20. Because of the littleness of your faith. Stop there. Because of the littleness of your faith. And that's not the answer I was looking for. Because of the littleness of your faith. Faith. This this has been a constant refrain. Matthew records it repeatedly. Littleness of faith. There, there actually is a compound Greek word behind it here, but it, but Jesus has spoken to it to them about this in in chapter six and verse thirty, in terms of their concern for you know what are they going to eat, what are they going to wear. He's spoken to them in chapter 8 and verse 26. He's spoken to them this way in chapter 14 and verse 31. He's spoken to them this way in chapter 16 and verse 8. They have heard this before. This is a representative sample. I would submit to you that they've heard it more times than has been recorded here. And it's not that they don't have any faith. It's just that the faith they have is inadequate. It, it It is vacillating and it is impoverished. It is a vacillating faith. It is an impoverished faith. It is an unacceptable faith. It is a faith they must repent of. It is not a God-pleasing faith. John MacArthur has a, something good to say, I think, on this. Uh, let, let me just read it to you real quick. He says, To have little faith is to have the kind of faith that believes in God when you have something in your hand when his provision is already made. When things are going well with the disciples and everything seemed under control, they found it easy to trust their Lord. But as soon as circumstances became uncertain or threatening, their faith withered. I think he's right on the money. All of those places where Matthew records Jesus calling them out for being little faith men in every single situa- situation, it has to do with basically their bodily needs, whether it be they think they're going to die or they're hungry. And he calls him out. Now, now f- listen to this. Faith is, is, is not, doesn't simply mean we have a certitude that God is going to act. Okay? That's not faith. It's not, it's not faith pleasing to God. The faith that is pleasing to God is a, is a total dependence upon God who watches over his children one can have the attitude, one can believe that God will act and yet go through life essentially faithless, relying on their own wits, relying on their own intellect, relying on their own hard work, relying on their academic achievements, relying on their family status or connections, relying on the size of their savings account. There are many things that people can and do rely on to really uh, to live, to have faith in, and yet at the same time profess that they believe God is in control and God will take care of me. And yet they live day to day, moment to moment, as if God is not part of the picture. God, I will carry the ball as far as I can, and when I run out of gas, you be there to pick up the fumble and carry it in for the touchdown. That is not faith pleasing to God. That is the kind of faith that gets one the rebuke of being faithless and twisted. You know, this whole situation here reminds me of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7, don't turn there, just, just listen with me. In Joshua 7, the, the nation of Israel has come in across the Jordan River. They have, they have circled Jericho seven times, right? And The walls have fallen down and they have conquered the city. And they have been told, do not take anything from the city. It is all under the band. It all belongs to God. It is all to be destroyed. If you take anything from the city, then I will not be with you, basically is what God says. So then the next next city to fight is Ai. You remember this? This is a smaller city. Just send a few people up to Ai. We don't need all the big hordes circling around. We'll just go up to Ai and we'll knock it off. They go up to Ai and they are are defeated before their enemies. They flee back. And Joshua doesn't know what to do. He tears his clothes. He says, woe is me. The nations are going to hear that we have turned and run before them. They're going to surround us. They're going to destroy us. Oh, God, what's going on? And God says to him, there's sin in the camp, idiot. Oh, he doesn't say it exactly that way. <laughs> you check me out on this. It's a Joshua 7. Just write this down. You check it out. Joshua 7, 10 through 11 in, uh, in harmony with chapter 6 and verse 18. That's exactly what he's communicating to him. Joshua, why are you tearing your clothes and asking me what's wrong? What's going on? I told you. Somebody has stolen something from Jericho. You should know that. You should know that from the character of your God. And I, and I think that's exactly the situation here, is, is Jesus doesn't really give them the warm fuzzies here because they should know why they could not cast out that demon. They shouldn't have to, to, uh, to come into the house and say, we tried. They should know immediately. 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 The reason they had no power over the demon is because they were trying to operate in the flesh. They were trying to do ministry in the power of the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit of God. They were not in total dependence upon God. Would they have disavowed Christ as Messiah? Of course not. But they were not living and ministering in a way that was dependent, fully dependent on who he is and what he can do. We might even say they were resting on their laurels of past ministry glories. Now I'm not speculating on this. Mark makes this very, very clear. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 29, Jesus says to the disciples, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. It cannot come out by anything but prayer. You did not call to God to help you in this. Oh, you probably rattled off a quick prayer, maybe two or three. But the picture here is that you did not beseech God in prayer consistently, faithfully, and in complete dependence upon God. And thus you should not be surprised. You should not be surprised that you are unsuccessful. Jesus makes it clear uh, six months later in the upper room in uh, John 15. In verse 5, he says to them, apart from me, you can do, what? Nothing. Do we believe that? We believe it here. Do we believe it here? How often do we live as if, well, apart from me, you can't do many things, but there are some things I can do. We just kind of take that approach. Be very clear here. Very clear. Verse twenty. Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now we're dealing with figurative language. Figurative language. This is a, this is a proverb. The idea of moving a mountain is a Jewish proverb, which talks about overcoming an impossible situation. And Jesus, I think, is setting up here the, the, the tension between the mustard seed, which is the smallest acknowledged uh, garden, common variety garden seed, and a mountain, right? And you got, if you like it, you got Mount Hermon in the background. So you got 9,200 feet, Mount Hermon covered in snow, and you got a mustard seed, which you know, looks like a speck of dust on the palm of your hand. And there's this contrast going on here, and he's doing it intentionally. He's speaking about the the spiritual reality that that small faith, even small faith, placed in the one who is all-powerful is able to accomplish whatever God would have. It's simple as that. You want an illustration of the moving mountains? I'll give you an illustration of the moving mountains. Beginning six months later and running over the next 40 years, they turned the Roman Empire upside down. How's that for moving mountains? How's that for a handful of people moving mountains to turn the empire of Rome on its head? They fulfilled the Great Commission in their day. Beloved, it's not the size of our faith. It's its riches or its poverty which makes it effectual. It's riches or its, or it's poverty. And it's riches or it's poverty is not located in the faith itself. It's located in the object of that faith. You understand that? It is in the object of that faith. Rich faith is located, it is placed in a God who is all powerful. Poor faith, shabby faith, shoddy faith is shoddy, shabby, poor, little, ineffectual, because it is not placed in the all-powerful God. It is placed in man, who is shoddy, shabby, and ineffectual. And that's the difference. By the way, this is an argument, I think, from the greater to the lesser here. just talking about applying it in life. This is true in the spiritual realm. It is true in the natural realm. It is true in the natural realm. If you cannot minister, disciples, into this situation with this demon and this this terrible affliction, then there's no part of life that you're going to be successful at. Not successful in the eyes of God. If you seek to live your life faithlessly. Faithlessly. Now these are believers. Probably should have said that earlier. These are believers. These are not unbelievers. These are not lost people. These are not people bound for the lake of fire. Now, there's more for them to learn, more for them to grow, more for them to, to understand, more for them to do, to be sure. But these are children of God. And they are receiving a pretty stern rebuke. Pretty stern rebuke. But there's some encouragement in here. There's some encouragement in here, okay? We need some encouragement. You close it down. How about a little encouragement? Feeling beat up? Well, I hope if you're feeling beat up, you're feeling beat up by the Spirit of God and not by me. But I'll, I'll close with a little encouragement because I need a little encouragement. Here's a little encouragement. And one writer wrote this, and I, I think it's good. He says the encouraging thing in, in this entire um, account here is that even a small amount of God-centered living can accomplish incredible things. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. Right? Faith aside as of a mustard seed can move mountains. So it's not like you gotta, you gotta work up this, you know, 50-pound supply. Just a little bit of real faith. God does mighty things. Mighty things. I'm encouraged by that. Because that's about the best I've got. And even that's uncertain on some days. Let's pray and ask God to increase our faith. Our Father, we're confronted here in this account in ways uh, that uh, can be shocking. And I think Matthew intends it under inspiration of your spirit to be that way for us. Because complacency is always a present, clear and present danger. Father, we confess that faithlessness is often our situation. Not, not that we would deny you. Not that we would turn from orthodoxy or anything like that. Not that we would, that we would deny you in the, in, the, in the big issues of life. It's the little places, Father, that we just seem to, to fall down so much. And, of course, as we continue to fall into little places, we're susceptible in the big ones. Our Father, we receive the rebuke as a loving gift from your hand. We know Jesus loved his disciples and he spoke to them that way and, and he loves us and he speaks to us too. But we take it as the correction of a loving father. We take it as, a, as a, um, something that just signifies that we're really your sons. You care about us. And we beseech you, increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Help us to make use of the means of grace that you, that you give to us. And help us, Father, to walk by faith in the little places, just to, to grab hold of you and hang on tight. Show yourself powerful in us. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.